So can you believe it? We've arrived. We're in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. I know that that takes some of you by surprise that we're moving so quickly through this letter. This is the 10th sermon in this series, um, which means that we're averaging about 2.8 verses per week. And uh, I know that some of you find that pace a little slow, but I learned something this last week that I think will, will help give you some perspective. And it's this, in 1739, Jonathan Edwards preached a 30-sermon series on Isaiah chapter 58, verse, 51, verse 8. And get this, he only covered half the verse. So you should be encouraged that we're moving so quickly through 1 Peter. And uh, so... Let me, let me begin like this. The, uh, the week before Easter in 2021, I, I had the joy of getting COVID for the first time. I was miserable for about a week, and then I gradually recovered. But there was one symptom that I had that it hung on for about three months, and it was, it was a common symptom, but it was strange. It was strange to me because I had never experienced this before. It was the, uh, the loss of my sense of taste. And mine wasn't a partial loss. It was a total loss of taste. I could literally taste nothing. My morning coffee had no flavor whatsoever. That was probably the worst of my suffering. Seriously, I couldn't tell the difference between my coffee and a hot uh, gl- glass of water. So a week or so after that, um, after I recovered uh, that first week, Tracy fixed my favorite meal, salmon and rice, and I was looking forward to it. But I don't know exactly what I was expecting out of it. My taste buds were still totally offline, but I was looking forward to this meal. It took about two bites before reality sunk in, eating fish with no sense of taste means that all you really experience is, other than the temperature of the fish, is the texture. Now, I'd be overstating it to say that the fish felt slimy in my mouth. Uh, It'd be an overstatement, but it was something like that. Uh, It was warm, tasteless, semi-slimy flakes of fish flesh which is about as appetizing as it sounds, especially when I was expecting all of those wonderful flavors of my favorite meal. Now, try to imagine this. You've never tasted Tracy's salmon before, and your first bite tastes just like mine post-COVID. How's your appetite? Are you going to go back for a second plate to satisfy your hunger? Probably not, unless you're starving. In fact, if, if Tracy's salmon were one of the items uh, on the, in the smorgasbord at the Golden Corral, uh, you'd pass it by and warn the guy behind you, I'm certain. Now, this is a, it's a weak analogy, but that's the spiritual condition in which many find themselves, even some of you. You have no spiritual sense of taste whatsoever. 
So when Christ is offered to you in the pure spiritual milk of his word, you turn up your nose at it, and you have no sense of the sweetness and the goodness of the Lord. So you either spit it out or you pass it by and grab whatever you can from the buffet line of life to try to satisfy your hungry soul. And that idea, that idea, that sense of spiritual taste is central to what Peter is telling his readers in this morning's text. So let's get our bearings as we do each week and then jump in. Peter is writing to believers who are in exile. They're in exile throughout Asia Minor. In verses 3 through 12, which we will read every Sunday until we finish the letter, Peter reminds them of the delicious truths of the gospel, God's great mercy, salvation, life, a living hope, and the glorious inheritance that is theirs in Christ. Then he shifts from gospel truths to gospel behavior, because as we learn from Jonathan Edwards, all true Christian grace tends to holy practice. These exiles are Christians living among pagans. Society doesn't accept them, and the society doesn't like their worldview. And they're being pressured to conform to the, or reconform to the mold of their former ways. Their situation is not unlike yours today. And Peter is encouraging them in this letter to stand strong in the hope of the grace that is to come. And he instructs them on how to live in exile. Up to this point, Peter has given four instructions. As an exile, one, you must set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Two, you must be holy. Three, you must conduct yourself with fear that is in the fear of the Lord. Four, Last week, we learned from Josh's exposition of chapter 1, verse 22, that you are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's fifth instruction is in this morning's text, long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. So last week's focus was on the Word of God or the gospel as the seed of your new life. This week, the focus is on the Word of God as the food that nourishes and grows us throughout our time in exile. Verse 1, so, mark that little word, so, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter uses that little word, so, or therefore, to link this thought to what he had written a moment before. It points back to verse 23, where he said, you have been born again. He is grounding his fifth instruction on the gospel truth that you have been reborn spiritually. Because you have been born again, therefore, put away all unloving attitudes and behaviors. Now, rather than saying attitudes and behaviors or thoughts and feelings and actions, I am simply going to refer to this list as the vices. That is in contrast to Christ-like 
virtues. Put away all unloving vices. You have been reborn through the living and abiding Word of God. Now live a life that corresponds with your new birth. Or as Paul said it to the Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep step with the Spirit. So, or therefore, he says, put away. And those two words should be familiar to you from our year-long trek through Colossians. They're the same words Paul uses in Colossians 3.8 for a similar, a very similar list of vices. He says, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. That put away language that both Peter and Paul use is that of taking or stripping away dirty clothes. It's a picture of stripping away the filthy clothes of unloving vice. And Peter says, you must strip them away. Now, this is not a complete list. There are others. And I take that from the fact that Peter uses the word all three times here. All malice, all deceit, and all slander. So these are just Peter's select examples. But you must strip them away all away. Why? Well, there are several reasons. Let me just give you two. One, these vices are contrary to who you are now that you have been born again. Since your new birth, you are growing into the likeness of your Father. And these vices are contrary to that. Number two, these vices are contrary to everything Peter has been instructing us thus far. They're contrary to being holy like your father. They are contrary to living in the filial fear of the Lord. And they are contrary to loving one another. And they are desires, or they flow from desires, that run contrary to the instruction in this week's text. Now let's take a brief look at each of these vices. Malice. The vice of malice is the unloving desire of the heart to do evil or to cause injury to another person. One of the Puritans put it like this, malice is an old grudge upon some wrong done, whereupon it waits to do mischief to him that did it. And then he contrasts anger with malice. Anger is like a fire kindled in thorns. It soon blazes and is soon out. But malice is like fire kindled inside a log. It continues long. It's when your husband wrongs you and you hold on to it and you harbor it, waiting for the right time to get back at him or to rub his nose in it. Deceit. The the vice of deceit is the unloving. You notice that each of these are unloving. They're in contrast to what we learned last week, that we must love earnestly. The vice of deceit is the unloving behavior of hiding truth in order to mislead. It is deception or fraud or cheating. 
It's when you call in sick from work when you're not. A study last year of, of about a, a 1,000 Americans suggests that at least 84% of all employees do exactly that. It is deceit. The vice of deceit is the lying lips of Proverbs 12, 22. They are an abomination to the Lord. Hypocrisy. In this case, Peter uses the plural. It is hypocrisies. The vice of hypocrisy is the unloving behavior that puts on a false appearance. You try to look virtuous, you try to look good, but you conceal your real character. It's play acting to create a public impression that is at odds with your real intent or motive. It is an outward show. It's when you can talk a good talk. You can speak perfect Christianese, but your heart belongs to the world. It's when you tote a gigantic Reformation study Bible to and from church. You put it on its own chair next to you so that everyone can see that you're Reformed and that your Bible is bigger than theirs. You never actually read it during the week, though. It's just an outward show. It's acting like the scribes and Pharisees who Jesus condemned, outwardly appearing righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Envy. The vice of envy is the unloving feeling of ill will when you think about the advantages that someone else has or that you think they have. It's begrudging the advantages or the privileges that others seem to be enjoying. It's feeling displeased when you find out that your lazy coworker just got picked over you for the promotion. Envy is the sin of Cain, and it's the reason the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Paul warns against it, that those who do such things, and envy is in, is in his list, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, slander. The vice of slander is the unloving behavior of making false statements or comments about someone to malici- or maliciously re- misrepresent their actions in order to defame them or injure them. You cannot read a news headline these days without seeing slander, although I think in writing it's called libel. Slander. It's when you tear down with your words. It's the offhanded remark meant to discredit someone. Yeah, that's my neighbor's new truck. He has more money than he has brains. It's what Paul feared might hap- might, he might find when he visited the divided church in Corinth. He said, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In this list of vices, some commentators see a chain of sins each vice springing from the one before it. From malice, the desire to wrong another person, springs deceit, the desire to deceive them. From deceit springs hypocrisy, which is a kind of deceit that pretends to be what you are not. 
From hypocrisy springs envy. You become envious of those whom you feel the unloving desire to play the hypocrite. And from envy springs the unloving desire to slander the one you envy. St. Augustine strung these vices together like this. Malice, he said, delights in another's hurt. Envy grieves at another's good. Deceit imparts duplicity to the heart. Hypocrisy imparts duplicity to the tongue. And slander wounds the character of another. And Peter says that we must strip them all away like filthy clothes. They are unloving and they are not in step with the reborn you. Now, what follows in verse 2 is Peter's fifth command. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. To long means to intensely desire or to crave something. It is a consuming desire. It is the craving that the psalmist compares to a deer panting for water. Or or the psalmist's desperate longing for deliverance that makes him groan, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. That's the intensity of desire that Peter is instructing you to have. Now, what is it that you must crave? It is the pure spiritual milk, which is the Word of God. Your English Standard Version just says, long for the pure spiritual milk. It doesn't tell you what that milk is, but if you're using a translation like the King James or the New American Standard Bible, you'll see that they translate it as the milk of the Word. And that comes from the context, verses 23 through 25. You have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God, and it was the Word of God that was preached to you. So Peter follows that with this command, to crave the same Word through which you were born again. Martin Luther makes the same connection. Instead of calling it the Word broadly, he calls it the gospel, which is exactly right. It is through the gospel that you have been born again. The milk, Luther said, is nothing but the gospel, which is also the very seed by which you were conceived and born, as we heard above. He's referring to verse 23. This is also the food that nourishes us when we grow up. It is the armor which we put on and with which we equip ourselves. Yes, it is everything put together. The early church father, Tertullian, wrote, The word word is to be desired with appetite as the cause of life. What he's saying is, do you want to live? Then drink the milk of the word, to be swallowed in the hearing of it, to be chewed as cud with the understanding, and to be digested by faith. So I ask you this morning, how's your appetite for the word of God? It's an important question to ask yourself. Do you crave the word of God? 
Now, we always need to be careful with those questions. The Puritans called them spiritual diagnostics. You'd be careful. Your desires, as you know, in this life will never be perfect. They will never be as strong as they could be or as they should be. But that's not really the point of the question. Rather, do you have any craving at all for God's Word? Any longing at all for the Word? That's the question. Because you know that if a baby has no appetite whatsoever, something is terribly wrong. So ask yourself, how's your appetite for the Word? Well, to help these exiles understand the kind of craving that they are to have, Peter uses a comparison that every parent at his time and every parent here would be familiar with. Verse 2, like newborn infants, that's how you are to long for the pure spiritual milk. You've been born again through the Word, now like newborns, crave that same word for your growth. It's not only the seed by which the newborn babe is begotten, wrote Edwards, but it is also the milk by which it is nourished. And how do newborns long for milk? One, they're passionate about their milk. If you don't give it to them, they will pitch a fit. Two, they want their milk often. Three, when they're craving milk, milk is all they want. You could say that infants are rather single-minded about their milk. Offer them whatever you will, a binky or a vacation to the Bahamas. And they will never be satisfied until you give them their milk. And that's how Peter says you are to crave the Word passionately, frequently, and single-mindedly. Now, the Word here is not the elementary teachings of the faith. I know that a lot of you know your Bibles well, and you know that Paul and the author of Hebrews uses the milk metaphor that way. But Peter's using it differently here. He's not saying that these exiles are infants, new in the faith, and that someday they'll need to outgrow the milk of the Word. He's saying that they must always be like newborns craving the milk. And Peter describes this milk in two ways. First, he says it is pure. Take note of that word pure. It comes from the same root word as the vice deceit. In verse 1, the only difference is one letter. It's a prefix that turns pure into the negative. So what it literally means is without deceit. It is unadulterated. It is truth with nothing deceitful in the mix. The other day, one of our, one of our kids bought a can of infant formula for the twins. And after they, uh, later, they opened up the can and they found that it wasn't sealed. Uh, someone had already opened it. Uh, of course, they threw it away. Why? Because you would never risk putting unpure milk into the mouth of a baby. It might have something harmful mixed into it. It is 
or possibly adulterated. And you should take the milk of the word, the gospel, just as seriously. The risk to your soul is not worth feeding it unpure milk. And Peter says that this milk is not only pure, it is spiritual. By that he means that he is using milk as a metaphor. He wants to make that clear. The nature of what he's talking about here is spiritual and not physical. Now, why must you crave and presumably, he doesn't say it, but I assume, drink, crave and drink this pure spiritual milk? Peter answers that at the end of verse 2. You, you crave it and you drink it so that by it you may grow up into salvation. You must crave the milk of the Word because it is by the milk of the Word that your soul will be nourished and will grow up. That is, it will grow up into salvation. It's important to pay attention to how Peter uses or views salvation. It's not how we use the word commonly. Christians uh, today usually speak of salvation as something in the past. It was something that happened to me before. You may have heard me say that I was saved or I came to salvation when I was 32 years old. Peter, though, uses salvation differently. He uses the word four times in this letter, and each time his focus is on the future. It is on a future salvation. You saw him do it in chapter 1, verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a future revealing of your salvation. And you saw him do it in, in chapter 1, verse 9 as well. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. Again, that is a future outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is telling these exiles to crave the milk of the word, that is to take in the gospel for the nourishment and growth of their souls, which is part and parcel to their salvation. Past, their rebirth, present, their life in exile, and future, the grace that is to come. Now let's turn to verse 3. Peter introduces a condition in verse 3, a condition of sorts that I think is the key to unlocking verses 1 and 2. He says, you are to put away vices and you are to crave like a baby the pure milk of the word if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, Peter's not questioning their faith. If you're using the New International Version, you'll notice that it says, now that instead of if. He's saying that if this is the case, that is, if you've tasted, as indeed you have, then crave, crave the Word so that by it you may grow, stripping away all the behavior that runs counter to brotherly love. And therein, I think, lies the power and the motivation to obey Peter's fifth instruction. First, though, let me show you where Peter got verse 3, and then explain why he uses it in this letter. Peter's quoting Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is the first time Peter quotes this psalm. Later in this letter, in chapter 3, he's going to quote it extensively. He's going to quote a full five verses from this psalm. Why? Because of what Psalm 34 represents to suffering exiles. Peter wrote, or sorry, David wrote Psalm 34, and, and in it he is reflecting on one of the times that King Saul tried to kill him. David fled to the city of Gath, which is in Philistine territory. And this is the time when, when David pretended to be insane so the Philippines wouldn't kill him. So he's living among pagans. He's in forced exile in a foreign land, and he's living in fear of his life. So David pens this psalm out of that experience. He praises God for delivering him from his suffering. He instructs suffering people to fear the Lord, and he urges suffering people to take refuge in the Lord. As you can see, it's, it is the perfect psalm to comfort and give hope, the hope of future grace to exiles who take refuge in the Lord. So he quotes Psalm 34, that it, to taste and see that the Lord is good. But what, is, what does that mean? It is, a, it is an odd metaphor if you think about it. You taste and see. We use it. Uh, you're going to like this. Um, taste it and you will see. Uh, we're sort of mixing the two different senses. Taste is one of our five senses. And Peter's using it here to say something about our experience of Christ in the Word. He takes a physical reality, something all his readers would understand, and then he applies it to a spiritual reality. For Peter, tasting is not merely knowing. I think that's why he uses the metaphor taste. He's saying more than to merely know. To taste is to partake of. It is to experience. You know it's a brisket simply by looking at it. But you experience the brisket by cutting a slice off, putting it in your mouth, and tasting it. I hope I didn't lose everyone for lunch right there. Tasting is more than mere knowledge. It is to experience by taking in. And in this case, it is to experience not just a thing, but a person. It is to experience the Lord. But again, we need to qualify even that. It's not merely experiencing the Lord. Everyone will experience the Lord, though for some it will be an experience of His wrath, the wrath of the Lamb. But it's not just an experience. Peter, like King David before him, is speaking of experiencing the Lord as good. You taste it and you know this is good. So now we can ask our final question. It's the irreverent sounding, so what? How does experiencing the goodness of the Lord, which is analogous to taste, help you crave the Word, one, and two, help you strip away those unloving vices? What's the connection, I'm asking, between verse 3 and verses 1 and 2? Well, first, we need to admit 
that Peter has laid down here an impossible command. He's commanding your heart to do something, to long, to crave. He isn't telling you to read your Bible or to study it or to memorize it, though all of those things are commanded elsewhere. He's telling you to desire it. He's going right to the core. He's telling you to long for it like a newborn baby longs for milk. And in case you haven't noticed, the cravings of your heart are not in your immediate control. You can't just wake up one morning and decide you're going to long for the Word today. Your heart doesn't work that way. So first and foremost, to obey this command will require a miracle that God must sovereignly work upon your heart, your spiritual taste buds. You can pray for this longing, and you can use all the means that God has given you to kindle this longing, but you're helpless to make it happen. That said, when you do taste, when God graciously grants you the experience of the goodness of Christ in the gospel, then you will begin to crave the word. The same word that worked the miracle of your new birth is the same word that will nourish your soul into salvation. When the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again, He puts Christ before you and gives your spiritual taste buds the ability to see His goodness. It's like you were blind and couldn't taste, but now you can taste and see that the Lord is good. So then how does this experience of the goodness of the Lord help you crave the Word? Well, the answer to that first part of the question is simple. The tasting causes the craving. Because tasting whets the appetite for more. That's pretty straightforward. If you taste a sample at Costco, and if you don't like it, you won't buy it. You'll just throw your little cup or your toothpick in the trash. But if it tastes delicious to you, you'll grab four boxes of it on your way out to the checkout. Tasting that it is good makes you desire more. The tasting causes the craving. It's, it's like that old commercial for Lay's potato chips. Bet you can't just eat one. Or for Pringles, once you pop... You can't stop. Tasting the goodness of the Lord, Calvin said, ought to allure us. That's the, that's the language that he uses. It ought to allure us. Whosoever has not tasted the word, Luther said, to him it is not sweet. It has not reached the heart. But to them who have experienced it, who with the heart believe Christ has been sent for me and has become my own and my miseries are His and His life is mine. Oh, it tastes sweet. So how does experiencing the goodness of the Lord help you obey this instruction? The tasting causes the craving. The second part of the question was this. 
How does this help you strip away those unloving vices? It does it first, or this is a point two. I know that my outlines are always confusing, um, but it does it first, point two, by making them tasteless. Listen to Robert Layton. This man is a 17th century archbishop of the Church of Scotland. And he wrote, He that hath indeed tasted of this goodness, oh, how tasteless are those things to him that the world calls sweet. As when you've tasted something that is very sweet, it disrelishes things after it. If you ever took a gulp of orange juice after eating pancake syrup, you know exactly what Leighton is saying. The goodness of the Lord makes everything else tasteless in comparison. And if you have tasted that the Lord is good, Spurgeon says that you will abhor the garlic flavor of the world's vices. I don't know, maybe you didn't like garlic. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, he says, then lose your taste for all earthly trifles. Let the ox have his grass and the horse its hay, but souls must feed on spiritual meat. Tasting that the Lord is good makes vice tasteless. Next. Or second, point three, tasting that the Lord is good has the power to expel unloving thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Here's Robert Layton again. Surely, if you have tasted of the kindness and sweetness of God in Christ, it will compose your spirits and conform them to Him. It will diffuse such a sweetness through your soul that there will be no place for malice and deceit. There will be nothing but love and meekness and singleness of heart. As the Lord is good, so they who taste of His goodness are made like Him. You are what you eat. How does tasting the goodness of the Lord help you strip away unloving vices? Well, first, it expels them. Lastly, With the goodness of the Lord on your tongues, you are powerfully motivated to show love to others. Or you could say it like this. This is is Milton Vincent, the author of that wonderful little book, A Gospel Primer for Christians. If you haven't read it, you need to grab that little book and read. You are always willing to show love to others when you are freshly mindful of the love that God has shown you. That's why we encourage you to make a habit of pressing the gospel and gospel truths into your heart every day. I don't want you to see this for yourself. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and we'll we'll look at verses 1 through 8 as we bring this to a close. This is Paul He says, remind them, that is Titus, remind the believers on the island of Crete, remind them of seven things. One, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Two, 
to be obedient. Three, to be ready for every good work. Four, to speak evil of no one. You can hear the vice of slander there. Five, to avoid quarreling. Six, to be gentle. And seven, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Four, Paul now gives Titus the basis or the foundation for those instructions. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days, and catch this, doing what? In malice and envy. Two more of the vices on Peter's list. Hated by others and hating one another's. One another. You can see how those vices destroy brotherly love and cause disunity in the body. Now, here comes the goodness that we taste of the Lord in His Word. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's past tense. That's your rebirth. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel, and the hope of eternal life is the future aspect of your salvation. It is the grace to come. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, that is, those who have tasted of the goodness of the Lord by faith in His Word, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So how does tasting the goodness of the Lord help you strip away unloving vices? Because it is the kind of spiritual tasting that the power of the gospel empowers you to love and to forgive. In fact, the goodness of the Lord and the gospel gives you the power to forgive. The spiritual resources, the wherewithal, the means to lovingly forgive those you have wronged because it ever reminds you of the forgiving goodness that the Lord has given you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the kind of tasting that empowers forgiving love. It is the kind of tasting that strips away the desire to do evil or to cause injury to another person, malice. It is the kind of tasting that strips away the desire to hide the truth in order to mislead, deceive, or cheat deceit. It is the kind of tasting that strips away the desire to play act, to create a public impression that is at odds with the real you, hypocrisy. It is the kind of tasting that strips away the feeling of ill will when you see the advantages that someone else has. And it strips away the desire to make false statements about someone or to maliciously represent their actions in order to defame them, slander. Doing good 
and showing love to those who have wronged you, this is Vincent again, is always the opposite of what your sinful flesh wants you to do. Nonetheless, when you remind yourself of your sins against God and of His forgiving and generous grace toward you, you give the gospel, the good tasting pure milk of the word, an opportunity to reshape your perspective and to put you in a frame of mind wherein you actually desire to give the same grace you've received to those who have wronged you. That's what happens when you taste that the Lord is good. It makes you crave more. It makes your unloving vices tasteless. It expels unloving vices, and it empowers you to love and to forgive. So my charge to you this morning is simply to echo what the Apostle Peter says here. Taste, brothers and sisters. Taste, experience the goodness of the Word. And let that taste inflame your desire for more of it. Long to taste more of Christ's goodness in His Word. And let that taste work by the power of the Holy Spirit to strip away all your filthy clothes of unloving vice. Let me pray for you. Father, these verses are so beautiful. Father, they, they taste so good. And Father, we want, we want more of them. But Father, we know that our desires are weak and we are distracted by so many things. So Father, I pray that you would work that miracle in my heart, work that miracle in the hearts of each person here at Living Water Church. Bring their taste buds to life. Enable them to see that you are good. And Father, I pray that it would unleash in them a desire for more of Christ in your word, more of that goodness. And I pray that it would unleash a desire to strip away every vice that has them encumbered. So, Father, I know that that's a miracle. I know it will require a miracle, and so I ask that you would do that. Use your word this morning through the power of your spirit to work that in the hearts of these people. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.